The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Run It edition. It's Wednesday, January 17th, 2017. On today's show, the post is Steven Spielberg's retelling of the story behind the publication of the Pentagon Papers. Those reveal decades of lying about the Vietnam War by the American government. The movie stars Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. And then The End of the Fucking World is a Netflix import from England. Its improbable setup is that of a young psychopath taking a road trip with the young girl he intends to kill. And finally, Facebook and the news. We discuss huge changes in the social media and media landscape with Slate's own Will Remus. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Julia, I have to know, when you um, uh, when you gave the go-ahead for the Slate redesign, the handsome redesign, did you say, run it? Uh, I did not say run it because m- much more valuable and important people to Slate than I were the ones who were in charge of saying run it this morning. We had a crack team up uh, before 5 a.m. to get everything going. But uh, yeah, there were some some very delightful, positive journalism exhortations happening at Slate The question HQ. is whether Julia was wearing a caftan at the time, but we can get into that <laughs> I, in our post I, I was going to say, that's so funny you say that, Dana. When she said crack team, I imagined uh, guys in balaclavas rappelling off the side of the building. It, that is what it was like. <laughs> That is yeah. what it was like, definitely. Uh, well, every day at Slate, really. But uh, Dana Stevens is the film critic. Uh, I know you rappel uh, into work every day. Oh, regularly. Greetings, yeah. Steve. Greetings. Um, all right, should we dig in? All right, The Post is a handsome piece of uh, Spielbergiana. It tells the story behind the publication of the Pentagon Papers by the Washington Post. This was in 1971. Uh, the Pentagon, Pentagon Papers, for those of you uh, who don't remember, were, these were internal studies um, detailing the massive failure of the Vietnam War strategically and um, in really every respect, and the extent to which every president since Truman had lied to the American people about the conflict. It stars Tom Hanks as Ben Bradley, the Post's editor-in-chief, and Meryl Streep as Catherine Graham, the high wasp doyen who owned the paper, uh, and whose courage and sense of patriotic duty was summoned by history. Let's listen to a clip. So, can I ask you a hypothetical question? Oh, dear, I don't like hypothetical questions. Well, I don't think you're going to like the real one either. Do you have the papers? Not yet. Oh, gosh, oh, gosh, because you know the, the uh, position that would put me in... You know, we have language in the prospectus. Yeah, I know, I know that the bankers can change their mind, and I know what is at stake. You know, the only couple I knew that both Kennedy and LBJ wanted to socialize with was you and your husband, and you owned the damn paper. But since the way things worked, politicians and the press, they trusted each other so they could go to the same dinner party and drink cocktails and tell jokes while there was a war raging in Vietnam. I don't know what we're talking about. I, I'm not protecting Lyndon. Oh, no, you got his former Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, the man who commissioned this study. He's I'm one of about a dozen party him. guests out on your I'm not protecting any of them. I'm protecting the paper. All righty. Um, Dana, let me start with you. I'm curious to hear what you think of this as a, as a as a movie, but certainly one of its big themes is gotten at in that clip, which is this was both a story about the you know sweep of history as aided by a, a violin driven score. Right, there's a sense of historical importance, but it's also 
about the personal drama of Catherine Graham, a Washington, D.C. socialite who owns the newspaper um, but is enmeshed in the social universe of Washington, D.C., and what this decision not only meant to her in terms of free speech and the institution of the American press, but to her personally as a woman owning a business uh, who had these social ties. What did you make of this movie? Oh, I'm glad we're talking about it, first of all, because I didn't review it. Fred Kaplan reviewed it for Slate rather than me, he, and he liked it. Um, and But this will be my really first chance to, to dig into talking about it with you guys. I greatly enjoyed it during its unfurling. It's a weird mix of old-fashioned squareness, just old-timey Spielberg, as you said, violin-scored kind of patriotic sentimentality, and timeliness. And it was very deliberately rushed into production. In fact, Spielberg dropped the other movie he was making in 2017 so that he could make that movie. He said, I can only make it if I can make it in this year, because he regarded it as such a commentary on, on our moment, both as regards the relationship between power and the press, which that clip which we heard was all about, and the relationship between women and power. And uh, I think it's a really good movie about both of those things. And so I, I, I'm conflicted about it because it doesn't break any new cinematic ground. It, it at moments, and we can get into what those moments are, really falls into just sort of hokey uh, sentimentality a la Spielberg at his worst. Um, but it's tons of fun while it's unfurling. And it's packed with great actors giving great performances, although lots of them aren't quite given enough to do. Um, but Streep and Hank certainly are. And you can hear in that scene how much they bounce off each other and how much they shine in these roles. So overall, I would say, yes, I enjoyed the post. But there's lots of reservations about it that we can dip into now. And I know Julia, who is skeptical and has a furrowed mm-hmm. brow as I speak. So <laughs> I want to hear our editrix in chief talk about it. I want to hear that too. Julia, you're the, you're the sort of perfect hybrid creature made out of equal parts. Ben Bradley and Catherine Graham. You, <laughs> you speak with authority on this. What I wish. I wish. Um, we should stipulate here that we're owned by a company called Graham Holdings, formerly known as the Washington Post Company. Same Post, same Grahams. Uh, you know, Don Graham, Catherine Graham's son, used to run the company. Um, when I took over this job, he gave a very lovely toast at the party announcing the change. Uh, that talked about the role that women in leadership have had at the company over time. Like, I I have a well of feelings about uh, the family that this movie is about um, and the role that they've played in stewarding journalism and Slate's journalism over time. All that said, you would think I would love this movie about the importance of journalism and women leaders. But I thought it was a total schlockadoo corn fest. Like you didn't even enjoy it, but you didn't even enjoy it at the time. Uh, I certainly enjoyed parts of it. I mean, it's hard to spend that much time with Meryl and Tom doing their things. I love even hearing just the way that Tom Hanks has modulated his voice to play Ben Bradley. The sort of gruff Tom Hanks is a pleasure to spend time with. But there's something about this story. It's not just square. It's it's. It's corn pone. Like the moment when they, uh, Daniel Ellsberg gets off the plane where he's just heard McNamara be negative about the war and then he goes out to the press and lies about how the war is going great. Like, and the photographers pop up and they look like kind of extras sweeping out from the wings in a musical with like flash bulbs and like they practically have little press cards in their fedoras. <laughs> like, it, yeah, it just looks, it, I, 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 I'll circle back around to my fuller response, but I just felt a little itchy about how much it was slinging its audience exactly what it wanted. Yeah, mm. other, that's that's been the chief. I mean, you, you're really voicing the kind of chief critique of the post, which has been that it reinforces the audience's smug liberal beliefs. Steve, where do you fall? 
All right. Well, I have a, if you will bear with me, um, here is my arcane, but I think finally justifiable response to this movie, which is that it's two movies and each one of those is trying to be two movies and one of them works and one of them doesn't. Taking the one that works first, it's a period piece about the power of the press at a, you know, uh, urgent moment in American history with um you know a a, a vindictive president breathing down their neck um uh mixed with a uh, the drama of the mid-century woman of privilege which i don't mean to be belittling at all i mean i it seems to me when the movie works best and the movie is trying very hard to do this this is not incidental feature of the movie is when it really focuses on Catherine graham and the set of uh, choices that she was making and what the potential risks she was taking both personally, socially, professionally, what it meant for her to sort of inherited this p- paper and be treated by a bunch of middle-aged um, uh, white men in suits as kind of a figurehead and, and maybe something of an empty vessel and for her to assert herself at the critical moment of the movie. I actually thought that worked dramatically. It's, it's, it is not, not a corny picture. That is absolutely for sure. At the very moment she decides to make the decision, I thought Streep did her best acting and the, and the picture had real emotional traction. So th- those are those are two pictures that actually I think go together quite well. The drama of the press and the free press married to the story of this particular woman, a woman of privilege who's treated as a nothing and, and discovers, t- to her surprise as much as to anybody else's, that she's quite, quite something. Um, the second movie that's two movies that don't really go together is an attempt at a sort of spotlight fly-on-the-wall procedural about how newspapers work mixed with a, a, a movie that's telling, uh, a movie that has social importance written over uh, every frame of it and a highly self-conscious sense that this was a turning point in history. In other words, the movie's made by people who understand what this moment meant historically, and they're trying to infuse our present understanding of it back into the fly-on-the-wall telling of it. So every emotion, he both wants you to feel the spotlight effect of, I'm a fly-on-the-wall watching journalists do their job, and he wants you to feel Spielberg now, wants you to feel the um, political and historical import of every frame of the picture. I mean, virtually every line of the movie is a, it functions as a pull quote. You know, the free press, the First Amendment, I and mean, these sort of highly abstract concepts that were at a turning point in history, and those two movies don't go together. So I found myself knocking around all sorts of responses to it, occasionally finding... Uh, all of the uh, components gelling into an emotionally satisfying movie, essentially about Catherine Graham, um, and at other moments kind of conflicting with one another and producing um, high emotions that one felt was kind of one's homework to feel. Although that analysis is quite ornate in its construction, I find it super illuminating because I think it identifies for me, it helps me put my finger on the thing that I found a little bit lacking in this movie. I agree that central scene, the scene where uh, we see Catherine Graham come into her own and recognize the power that she has and the authority that she has and take up the mantle of that authority and make uh, a, an important and brave decision in a confident and uh, certain way. That moment is great. The Catherine we meet before that, the Catherine leading up to that, I kind of didn't buy like the the bumbling K Graham who's like knocking over chairs and fussing with the bottom of her jacket uh, and and practicing her remarks. 
you kind of just know that it's like the shrinking violet mask that's about to get torn off. And I, I just didn't find that part emotionally rich. It felt it felt it didn't feel fully inhabited or lived in, I think, less because of the performance. I'd never say that Meryl Streep didn't have it in her to be mousy if she wants to. And, and there are moments of it that are nice, but there just isn't quite enough time. Yeah, well, I mean, well, Spielberg could have made a very different choice and made it about that character and the Tom Hanks character and their relationship and how that changes the paper and have that not just be sort of the spine of the movie that the other organs and bones grow off of, but really the whole thing. But what he does try to do, and Steve, I think this was somewhere in your complex flowchart of the two movies trying to be two other movies each, is that he wants to make this sprawling epic about that time. So it starts off in Vietnam, and you sort of forget that right. about halfway through the movie. Like, wait, when we started yes. this movie off, we were in this kind of classic, you know, Nam jungle scene with Matthew Reese as Daniel Ellsberg typing out, you know, this information that eventually is going to go into the Pentagon Papers. He's a CIA analyst who's embedded in Vietnam. So we start off there. And uh, and it moves through this, you know, the, the huge newsroom of the Post with Bob Odenkirk as the reporter who mainly breaks the story for the Post, and uh, and all these sub stories going on, including. Can I just talk about what for me was the hokiest and dumbest moment of the entire movie, which I think I liked better than any of the three of us? But that protest that at some point someone drives through, I oh, think Tom Hanks' character this. drives through. There's just a moment that all of sort of '60s counterculture protests are are, are boiled down to this one <laughs> block group that, of like eleven people. <laughs> that yes. Tom Hanks is driving through in which one person is a, a young woman is singing hard rain at, at, <laughs> on, accompanying herself on guitar and then this is the part that really bugged me a kid some yes. young guy is giving mario savio's exact speech yes! from the berkeley free speech movement <laughs> like lifting it directly which he delivered on the steps of Sproul Hall, exist in fucking Berkeley, 3,000 miles away. I mean, it's just... And like three years before this movie takes place, like if a young radical was actually doing that in 1971 or whenever this movie takes place, people would be saying, dude, you just lifted Savio's entire feet. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make. That's what stop. I mean about it feeling stagey, like like the feeling sort of like a musical. I mean, we've seen so many different approaches to period work. I feel like between the television boom and you know movies, just general fascination, we've seen a bunch of different approaches to period work, looking at like mid-century to now recently, and this one feels more like Marvelous Miss Maisel than like. Uh, spotlight or Mad Men or something where you really just get mm-hmm. subsumed in the world. You know, it feels like every time you see kind of a stock figure, you're like, okay, it's a copy boy. Also, why are all the copy boys getting hit by cars? They can't. They they like. They there's two parts in the movie where same the same kid. Right? At, no, it's two different kids. They're across the street from the New York Times building. They stop in awe to behold it. Then they run for the door, jaywalking, and almost get hit by a cab. Like, can't anyone just enter the New York <laughs> Times building like a normal human being in this movie? Like, everything's kind of stagey in a way that. Run I it. think I think just undercuts how powerful the street performance has the potential to be. So I think I felt just yeah. slightly frustrated. But I don't think see this is what I mean about the spine versus the organs. I don't think that that central part of the film is as stagey. I don't think that the things that happen in terms of you know what happens between Tracy Letts, who plays the advisor, the key advisor. He's I don't know great. what his title is at the paper, he's but wonderful. he's sort yeah. of the one who's advising Meryl Streep's character on what to, how to proceed. And Tom Hanks, whenever sort of the brass of the paper is getting together and hewing out how they're going to 
run this explosive document. I was really fascinated. I also love the kind of reporting nostalgia and seeing how the paper was printed, of course, like hand setting the type and all that stuff. But I think when he tries to go epic, when he tries to pull the camera out larger and show things like the Vietnam War or the protest movement, that's when the hoax comes in. <coughs> and just because we keep bringing up Spotlight, I, which is obviously the, the movie to mention as it was the best picture Oscar winner journalism thriller just a couple years ago and would seem to make this movie sort of obsolete or superfluous, although I think they're doing very different things. But it's worth mentioning that Josh Singer, the co-writer of this movie, actually the guy mm-hmm. who Spielberg hired to rewrite the original script, was the screenwriter for Spotlight. So there was a deliberate yeah. attempt to lift some of that energy, I think. Yeah. yeah. And he, he, co- he co-wrote Spotlight uh, with uh, Tom McCarthy. Yeah. There's, there's two other little quick notes that I did like about the movie and that I thought it played well that I'd love to shout out despite all my ambivalence. I totally agree that the interplay with Streep and her uh, cohort is great. In particular, the performance of Bruce Greenwood as McNamara is so uncanny and good. I mean, he really sort of, despite not really looking that much like him, kind of nails the physicality of it. And uh, I I thought that performance was wonderful. Um, And then I actually thought, for all that the movie is a little bit predictable in some of its beats, the way that it handles the analogy to today uh, is interesting. They have moments of hearing Nixon speak and seeing him from outside of the White House talking about uh, his entity towards the press. And while you see this actor being Nixon inside the house, you hear the actual recordings of him recounting uh, and intoning his enmity towards the press and the post. uh, And there's a moment, I think maybe the final scene where we see him where it says, we're never letting the Washington Post in the White House again. The movie just lets that hang. But of course, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you know, the, the well current administration has attempted to ban various organizations from various places in ways that um, I thought that echo was nicely handled. Yeah. Um, I, the, my takeaway from this film, along with Lady Bird, you'll be able to guess it now. Come on, guys. Vent it out. Vent it out. <laughs> Put Tracy Letts in the ah, Yeah. Yeah, get him off the stage, put him on the screen. Yeah, I we should we should th- we should uh, do a callback here. We saw him um as George in uh, the stage production of Steppenwolf, a uh, stage production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and that stayed with me for days. Uh it, it gutted me. I thought he was remarkable. He's a great actor in addition to being a great playwright, but um one uh, let's if you'll pardon me to take one more whack at the horse carcass here. Uh, I I just think we're at a moment was very hard for Steven Spielberg to direct a movie starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep um, through no fault of their own. They're just so iconically iconic that you feel as though you're watching the school play. Like you've been four years at the same high school, the same theater kids who've starred in every production are putting on another show. I it's I'm I really am not trying to be sarcastic um, uh, when I say it. I just think it's a, a function of it's very hard to see Ben Bradley through Tom Hanks. The associations with Hanks are so powerful, and I think similarly Streep. It's just it's just the difficulty of the trade, right? You get to be that big, and um, yeah. Anyway, all right. The movie's the post. Uh, we're curious what you thought of it, uh, Fred Kaplan. We will we should say freaking loved the film kind of on every level we're significantly more mixed in our feelings but it's certainly we're seeing uh and come to facebook we'd love to know what you thought of it uh break the tie facebook.com slash culture fest okay moving on all right well now is the moment in the podcast we uh discuss some business inevitably we have some julia what uh what is it this week We've got a couple things here, Steve. Just a reminder that we're going to be 
doing a show live at Sundance with Aisha Harris of Represent. Uh, It'll be presented by Dropbox. Tickets for that are actually sold out. We are so excited to see the Slate podcast stands at uh, at Sundance. We hope that you will show us around. I'm confessed to being terrified of the lines and the chaos, but I'm sure Dana will guide us wisely. I also want to tell our listeners about another great Slate show, Lexicon Valley. Lexicon Valley is a podcast about language from pet peeves, syntax and etymology to neurolinguistics and dead languages. Recent episodes have tackled efforts to revive endangered Native American languages, the history and evolution of no and not, and how languages around the world developed similar words for mom and dad. It's hosted by linguist, author, and Columbia University professor John McWhorter. So check out Lexicon Valley wherever you get your podcasts. In Slate Plus today, we'll be talking about a topic near and dear to my heart, Slate's new redesign with Slate design director Jason Santamaria. You guys might not know this, but Jason Santamaria is kind of a big deal. He's an amazing designer. We're so lucky to have had him lead the work here. The work is not just on our website, but all of our branding across every platform, including all new Slate podcast tiles. So if you look at your phone, you will see we look different perhaps than we used to. Uh, We'll talk to him about the thinking there. Um, To hear that segment and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Plus is our membership program and a great way to support the journalism we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Julia, can I jump in here with a little business of my own? Oh, por favor. Uh, I am very excited to be interviewing Joe Hagan, the journalist who wrote the Jan Wenner biography that's been a huge success at Bard College on February 15th at 5 p.m. at the Weiss Cinema. That is at Bard, and it is open to the public. Uh, So once again, uh, Joe Hagan and I will be in discussions about the legacy of Rolling Stone magazine and Jan Wenner, 5 p.m. at the Weiss Cinema at Bard College. Uh, on February 15th. So I hope to see fans of the Gapfest there represent. Okay, moving on. One day, 17-year-old Alyssa, alienated, bright, sarcastic, that I mentioned alienated, befriends James, her high school's most conspicuous loner weirdo, and thus begins a peculiar black comedy, End of the Fucking World. It's now uh, serialized on Netflix, and it's a British import, I should say. James is not your run-of-the-mill goth kid. He is a psychopath, or at least he believes he is, a killer of small animals who aspires to bigger prey. They end up on the lamb together with the series asking the question throughout, will he kill her or will she humanize him? Let's listen to a clip. Hey. Hey. I've seen you skating. I haven't. You're pretty shit. Fuck off. Alyssa was new. She'd started that term. I thought she could be interesting to kill. So I pretended to fall in love with her. I haven't got a phone. Okay. I smashed it. Okay. Like, on purpose. Okay. So you can't call me. Okay. I don't have a phone either. Really? Yeah. I hate them. All right, well, you, just to give you a little background, you heard the voice of Alyssa, who's played by Jessica Barden, and you heard a little bit of her inner monologue, too. The um, 
uh, series jumps into their minds occasionally and jumps back out. The James is played by Alex Lothar. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, Julia, what did you uh, what did you make of this? I think I've seen less of this than you guys have just because we've been so crazy busy getting our redesign launched. If I'd had unlimited time, I would have devoured this whole thing. It's fresh. It's striking. It's addictive. It's got the... It's brief. Each episode is about 20 minutes. It's got the kind of streaming service bingeable cliffhanger shtick down pat. I was also curious as I watched the first, I think, three or four episodes, whether in fact this whole thing was a very elaborate and expensive like prank by or for Steve Metcalf. I've like <laughs> never seen something that's so Metcalfian. It's like misanthropes who secretly are total softies with hearts of gold. I haven't seen the end, so maybe not, but at least it's the way it's currently heading, uh, who are British, alienated, but maybe tweet indie pop. But, but maybe yeah, falling in their love. lives are scored and, 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 and although they are uh, in the present day, the music is just like the greatest hits of like an alternative rock radio station on like a small college in, I don't know, Birmingham in the early 90s. Like, what the fuck, Steve? Did you make this? <laughs> so you're saying it's by and for geniuses. I, I like that. Well, um, it's also Dana... about a psychopath. Let's just not forget. <laughs> but <laughs> Dana, before I weigh in, I'd love to hear what you think of this show. I mean, I watched the entire thing, Steve, basically at your bidding. You sent around this emergency email over the weekend as we were prepping the show saying, I'll read it to you. If you get a chance, watch EOTFW all the way through. <laughs> Episodes are short and in toto is easily one of the best things I've seen in 10 years of doing our show. Do you stand behind that? Is that really one of the best things that you've seen in all of our years talking together? I stand behind that completely. Yeah, absolutely. I really believe that. I mean, I completely enjoyed it. As Julia said, it's it's extremely bingeable. And uh, even without your your dire warning that we must watch the whole thing, I probably would have made it through. It's only, I mean, you can watch all eight episodes in under three hours, which, you know, as you know, I'm a little bit allergic to this built-in bingeable kind of uh, world of, of deliberate Netflix addiction. But this show does it right. It definitely does it right. Uh, it took me a little while to get into it. That clip that we heard is from the very first episode. And I would say for the first two or three episodes, I found the tone somewhat off-puttingly uh, mannered. I don't know how you would describe it. I mean, you say this is the ultimate Steve show, Julia, but it, it has elements of Wes Anderson, too, who's someone I know Steve mm -hmm. in general can't stand. And uh, and the first few episodes do have some Wes Anderson feel to them, both in the kind of the the stiltedness of the dialogue, which is all delivered in that kind of staccato deadpan tone that you heard in the clip. The framing is all very head on, you know, with sort of a grim teen in the center of the frame. I don't know. There's something there's something artificial about the setup that I thought I'm not going to be able to get into this. But yes. Steve, as you say, what it really is about is to um, very artificial people shedding their artificiality, right? I mean, two teenagers who are so desperately trying to define themselves as right. as nihilistic that they aren't they're not able to sort of right. feel their actual feelings. I think that's beautifully put and they're not just shedding their artifice. You're getting to see underneath what made them these incredibly damaged kids. I just want to say a couple things right up front. The first is this is actually the kind of thing I typically hate. It's in one sense self-consciously twee and in another sense self-consciously dark. I don't like them separately. I hate them when they're put together. Uh, when I heard the premise of this, I thought, oh, another fucking TV executive who's still in love with the word edgy. 
greenlit this thing. It's based on a graphic novel. I went in so suspicious of it, um, and but I was won over very quickly. And and I only just learned maybe maybe possibly one of the reasons why the showrunner. So it's based on a graphic novel by a guy named Charles S. Forsman, which I think was a success in its own right. But it was adapted by someone named Charlie Covell, C-O-V-E-L-L. Turns out Charlie Covell is a woman. And I think that that is one key to this TV show. It is not at all invested in the romance of the fucked up boy. Um, And in fact, quite the opposite. It's inspecting what that is and what its possible sources are and how toxic it it can be. The, The writing is superb. The performances are absolutely flawless. And when I heard the premise... You know, the very first line of the whole show is, I'm James, I'm 17, and I'm pretty sure I'm a psychopath. And I knew the premise of the show. When I heard pretty sure, I said, oh, they're going to falsify this. He's he's just going to be a normally kind of screwed up kid. And right away, I won't give it away, but they upped the fucking stakes, right? Like, finally, someone didn't just write up the stakes in the margin of someone's script. Um, uh, they actually did it in a meaningful way. This kid's really fucked up. He's really screwed up. And the show, in a way, is a kind of moral striptease, and you get to the center of both of these kids. And I, there were so many ways they could have screwed this up. They could have overplayed certain aspects of the violence. They could have done a Quentin Tarantino riff of the you know kind of true romance kind of thing. They could have really fucked up... Um, she it, it you kind of know i don't think this is a spoiler but she wants to reunite with her father that all i'll say is the relationship with the absent father is handled so perfectly uh, uh by the in the writing and the uh, performances i honestly think this is one of the three or four most surprisingly uh excellent things i've seen in the 10 years of doing the show and one of my favorites and i and i, I the reason i make such an impassioned argument for it is i I'm trying to separate out the ways in which it would appeal to me almost no matter what. And, and I mean, people who are not me and are totally unlike me are having the same reaction to this. I think this thing is superb. And I, I, I'd be bummed if people who listen to our show didn't seek it out. I, I really think it's that good. Steve, do you think it would be a good thing or a bad thing for a second season of this show to happen? Because Don't, apparently no there's spoilers. some, some no debate spoilers. about that. This isn't spoiling anything. It's it's I'm simply saying spoil, that it, it could be continued with... I'm not going to spoil it. I think it ended perfectly. I really do. And I, I and I think that that's where the ending should be left, but you never know. Maybe they get it right and it's wonderful. But I'm just curious, Dana, you saw it all the way through to the end, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have I uh, drunk the Kool-Aid on this one? What do you think? I don't know. No, I mean, I think you were, you were legitimately enamored. I don't know that I was as heavily enamored. The tone of it is so specific that I'm not <laughs> sure I would recommend it willy-nilly to everyone. I think that that combination that we described of sort of deadpan, stylized artificialness and and then just really kind of heartfelt psychological exploration of these kids' lives is something that takes a particular kind of patience and taste to withstand. And as you say, although the gore is not extensive, there is gore, at least fantasized gore, in almost every episode. So there is something about it that's a little bit stomach-churning, even as it's heartwarming. I get it that his relationship to violence is being shown to you in ways that are surprising with each violent turn you mean you think he has one relationship to violence and in fact he has a quite quite different one and i don't want to give anything away because this this, i went in knowing only the premise and it it continually surprised me so it the relation just uh, like small things right the relationship between the two women cops 
who are chasing them, right? I mean, it's done with little brushstrokes. It's not overdone. It's not laid on heavily. And it becomes integral to the story, what their relationship is, um, informs how the show uh, develops and ends. Um, that's that's really, really hard to pull off, I think. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I can't be rational about this or analytic about it. I think they did something astonishing. And I want everyone to see it and then, you know, we'll talk about it on Facebook or something. I really do think it's worth seeking out even if you think you don't like mannered stuff because I I think it has several things to recommend it. It has this combination of the extreme care that goes into anything as kind of detail-oriented and finely conceived and made as a Wes Anderson style, uh, not particularly naturalistic production. Um, it has this level of detail that really rewards viewing. There's something interesting to learn or look at in every shot. It's so economical in in sort of our streaming age where any episode could be 38 minutes or 52 minutes or why not make it 66 minutes. The tautness of the way that the story is unfolded I think feels really bracing and fresh. And then all of that rigor and structure and tightness and craft is cut against these two performances that are just so yeah. uh, open. They're like these kind of blooming flowers. There's so much armature and there's so much yearning underneath. And to me, the whole brew was really working. And And there's suspense in every bit. I just noticed in the most recent episode I watched that her voiceovers are in the present tense and his voiceovers are in the past mm. tense. And I don't know yet why that is. It, it may be that it's uh, supposed to make you wonder whether he fulfills his goal of murdering her or not, or I don't know. But it's um, there's just a lot to chew on. Uh, and yet it's sort of effortless to watch. So I, I think I'm, I have not consumed enough to know whether I land quite as far as Steve into the pro camp, but... I thought I I similarly when we first saw this on our memo of potential topics last week was like I roll yawn this sounds incredibly contrived yeah I feared Dexter territory you know that it was going to yeah. be sort of like yeah. psycho killer played for laughs sort of thing yeah not at all yeah and it just it's like a completely unexpected little brew uh, and I'd I'd say seek it out all right can I procure a commitment from you uh, an oral contract here uh, Julia Turner certainly. Will you watch this to the end, please? Yeah, yeah. I definitely will. That's I mean, I have a big ask with this show. I've said that about a lot of things. Like, <laughs> did I finish Mrs. Maisel? No. Did I finish Mindhunter? No. Do I kind of want to of both? Yes. But I will up this above those on the list. Oh, glory be. All right. It's called The End of the Fucking World. It is fucking brilliant. I love it. Um, set aside your antipathies to me and um, take this just as a, as a judgment. Um, detach it from me and watch this and come to Facebook and tell us. I really, really, really want to know whether... Um, Others agree with me. All right, moving on. This past Thursday, Facebook uh, made major changes to its news feed. Uh, they're going to downplay content from publishers and brands, and they're going to upplay content that prioritizes posts from friends and family, something I would think more in line with what the original conception of the site was. Here to tell us what that means, how it's going to happen, how it will seem different, and perhaps why it's happening 
is Slate's tech reporter and columnist, uh, the wonderful um, Will Arenas. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's good to be here as always. Ooh, one other thing we have to flag about Will, our longtime tech expert. He is no longer purely a writer for Slate. He's also a podcaster. He and April Glazer have started a wonderful podcast in the last few months. It's called If Then. It's about technological change now and how it will shape our lives and society. It's awesome. You should give it a shot and listen to it. Uh, Will, you're our Virgil here. We're a bunch of, we use technology um, uh, happily and understand it not. Uh, So uh, that's one of the reasons we love having you on the show is to walk us through it. So for listeners and for us, um, maybe describe exactly what this change is and how it's going to interface with actual users of the technology. And then we'll get deeper into maybe what it means and why they did it. Well, I think you're in good company in this case because I don't think anybody really fully understands what this change means. I'm not even sure Facebook fully understands it. They announced it five different ways with five five different executives posting five different blog posts, each with a little bit of a different lens on what they're trying to do here. Here's my best understanding. I think they're doing two things. One is, as you said, you'll see fewer posts in your feed from the pages you follow. So that's, you know, that's Slate, that's the New York Times, but it's also, I don't know, United Airlines or your favorite band or the local coffee shop, you'll see more from your friends and family. So that's that's one change. But this is actually something they've done before. They announced a similar change a year and a half ago. So people were confused um, as to why they're doing it again. I think partly they just feel like that didn't go far enough. Um, but also there's a second dimension to it this time. And that is that they're changing how they weight the various signals that help them predict what you're going to do with an item in your feed. So their ranking system is all about making a bunch of predictions. They're predicting whether you're going to hit like on a post. They're predicting whether you're going to click it and open it and read it. If it's a video, they're predicting whether you're going to watch it for at least you know some number of seconds. Now they're going to put a little bit more weight on the prediction of whether you're going to comment on a post and also a little bit more weight on whether your friends or family have commented on that post. So the ranking system now will be weighted a little bit more heavily toward actual discussion and interaction with the people in your feed instead of just passively consuming what you find there. Will, I have a question right off the bat about that active versus passive. And this, in a way, becomes a broader question about Silicon Valley and and where their thinking is at right now. But as it seems like that division between active engagement and passive engagement, as the Facebook executives are calling it, has become this kind of moral, <laughs> this moral differentiation in in, uh, in discourse about Silicon Valley that we want to be that we're going to be happier and more mentally healthy and somehow more epistemologically secure in the news that we're reading if we engage actively, quote unquote, with the news that we're reading, which, as you're saying, seems to mean basically commenting rather than just liking or sharing something. And uh, and there's even been, I think, some social research that indicates that when people engage actively in that way with social media, they're happier or at least less unhappy with the experience of having used it than people who passively consume it. And so I'm curious about, I guess, sort of the broader moral question that that raises and how... Uh, important that moral question is to technology makers in Silicon Valley right now, or, or and to what extent they're just giving lip service to it, essentially. Yeah, the idea that we are better off when we're actively engaging with content as opposed to just sitting back and consuming it is one that has a lot of currency in Silicon Valley right now. There's a guy named Tristan Harris, who was a sort of in-house design ethicist for Google at one point. He has since become a uh, a critic of technology and uh, a proponent of what he calls time well spent. And that's, as I understand it, it's basically the idea that when we're spending time with technology, it should be in service of some 
goal that we would endorse for our life. It should be meaningful to us. Uh, it should be enriching us somehow as opposed to just killing time. And uh, a lot of Facebook, a lot of ex-Facebookers, people who were involved in the creation of Facebook have come forward in the past year or so and said, you know what, we designed this newsfeed to be as addictive as possible. And I, I now feel guilty about that. I feel regret about that. We shouldn't have done it that way. This has really hit home for Facebook because these are not just, you know, the the snarky pundits who are giving it crap this time. It's actually people who know the product really well and, and know the core of the product who are now criticizing it. And whether that's true or not, it, Facebook seems to have, have taken it to heart. Again, it's it's always hard to, to disentangle, especially with Facebook, it's hard to disentangle their stated motivations from the actual motivations because you could imagine business reasons for a change like this as well. One of those being all the backlash to Facebook's role in the news media and Facebook's role in the 2016 election and Brexit and fake news and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you could see this partly as a retrenchment on Facebook's part saying, hey, we've gotten so much flack for this. News was never meant to be what we were about. We're just going to wash our hands of it. Facebook is saying that's not the case. This isn't about news. This isn't about fake news. This isn't about the media. It's really about making sure that our users are uh, you know, getting some value from their time on Facebook as opposed to just sitting there scrolling through endless, you know, uh, viral listicles or videos or whatever. But that's like obvious bullshit, right? I mean, uh, it feels to me like they've got a bunch of different potential business motives here. One is, you know, they tweak the algorithm every six months or so anyway, just because they've got some new thing they want to try or test or prioritize. So we can think about and analyze this shift, but I'm honestly not spending too much time adjusting to the brave new world where Facebook prioritizes friends and family posts because I look forward to the segment we'll do in six months where they're like, now it's all like finger puppets. Like, you got to do a finger puppet video if you want your Facebook post to get engagement. Um, So, you know, whatever, whatever team, have fun. Uh, But of course, they're not going to say what is true, which is like, holy crap, news is a hornet's nest. This is a pain in the ass. We're going to have to cultivate a whole set of expertise about verification, trust and truth if we really want to become the marketplace of news. We don't want to do that. Let's get out of that game. Also, news can be controversial. News news is just a gigantic headache. Uh, news might make it harder for us to gain a foothold in China, a big, growing, important, and largely news-averse uh, regulatory environment on the internet. Um, they have all kinds of business reasons to get out of the news game and all kinds of publicity reasons to not describe what they're doing as such and to propose that you know active engagement with content suggests something about the inherent value of that content. I don't know about you guys, but my desire to or willingness to or likelihood of posting a comment on a story has nothing to do with how valuable I found consuming that story, no matter what medium it's in, whether it's listening to a podcast or reading something or watching a video. Like sometimes I'll watch something and be moved and informed and challenged and intrigued by it and just quietly, nay, even passively <laughs> absorb that mind changing experience and be grateful that I did. And right. sometimes I'll comment because I'm like, this thing is a bogus pack of lies. And it seems like they completely misrepresented what they're doing here or, um, you know, whatever else. So they, it, it feels to me like the language they're using to talk about this shift has very little to do with their motives uh, and 
it also probably won't last for long. <laughs> if anything, I would say a share is, is a, would be a more enthusiastic response. I feel like if I read a story that I really thought was excellent, sort of the biggest compliment that I could pay would be to share it and try to get more people to read it. Yet that's sort of read by the algorithm as, a, as, a, as an act of passive engagement. Well, and they, that was one of the shifts, you know, 14 shifts ago where they thought, you know, where they shifted from, are you clicking on things to are you sharing the things after you've clicked on them with the idea that they would be downgrading clickbait and emphasizing the valuable content that had so much merit you wanted to share it with others. But that's, you know, that's that's a ways back at this point. Yeah. I mean, one criticism of this is that they basically took the the Twitter ratio, which is this idea that when somebody posts a tweet that gets way more replies than favorites, it was probably a really bad tweet. And they're taking that as a good thing. And, you know, your Facebook <laughs> feed will now be full of full of ratioed posts that everybody responded to uh, because they were terrible. I, I imagine that if that, is, if that does turn out to be the case, they'll probably move pretty quickly with their next newsfeed update to try to adjust that because I don't think that's their goal, although it could be the effect. I think one thing that I wanted to get at, and, and Julia, I think you made a lot of smart points there. I, I think one distinction that's worth making is between news and other types of content that you might consume in the feed. I mean, we, we sometimes use news to mean sort of hard information and commentary about public affairs, but we also sometimes use news to mean like everything that you see in your Facebook feed from online publishers, which could be you know, a, a uh, I don't know, a, a viral story about a, a cat that got lost and found its way home or something, right? And I think what Facebook is doing here, yes, they are pulling back from hard news, but they're also, by all indications, pulling back from the viral stuff. And so if you wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt that they really are making this change for some you know, for for at least, you know, there's at least some element of social responsibility involved in their motivations here. You could say that, that the bigger effect here is likely to be on the viral stories of lost cats or whatnot, and not on hard news, because really, as far as we can tell, that's a small proportion of what people get in their Facebook feeds anyway. I mean, we in the media you know, we sign up for the Slate page and the Atlantic and the New York Times, and we have journalist friends. And so we're seeing lots of actual journalism on our feed. All indications are that most Facebook users are not actually seeing that much journalism in their feeds to begin with. What they are seeing is a lot of the the, the viral clickbait stuff or share bait or stuff that, you know, uh, gets at your emotions or confirms your biases. And they're going to be seeing less of that as well. And that's why Facebook stock actually took a hit the day after they announced these changes, because really seeing that kind of stuff and cons- passively consuming that kind of stuff is a big part of what they of what a lot of people do in their feeds. One thing that that I also, I mean, just as a user, a Facebook that was just a great place to get updates on the lives of your friends would be a super valuable service to me. Like if all of my favorite people would put on Facebook, you know, little dispatches from their lives. I would hang out there. I would enjoy that. Because of how fractured the social landscape is at this point, that does not seem likely to me. Like, depending on their generation, sensibility, technological proficiency, I have different cohorts of friends who post updates from their lives in different forums. I currently get such updates in uh, shared Apple photo streams in Instagram stories, in Instagram feed, in direct Instagram messages, in uh, group text chains with old groups of friends where we share pictures of and jokes about our lives, uh, 
Not so much on Twitter. Not so much personal stuff on Twitter. Um, some stuff on Facebook. There's like eight random friends from different walks of my life who I'm quite well updated on. People I haven't spoken to in years, but other people that I never hear anything about. Like, I sort of think they've they've missed the boat on being the place that serves that goal because so many people have abandoned Facebook at this point that you can't really have one-stop shopping for the in-touchness that they purport to want to provide here. Well, plus it's so algorithmically determined what you're going to see that your best friend in life could have just had a baby and posted a beautiful picture of it and it got buried because, you know, there were more people looking at the viral cat video. Right. You're you're reading about your old kindergarten pal's like push-up fundraising challenge and you're like, I'd, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel like it's doing that service particularly usefully. Yeah, either. that's one of the main reasons that I almost never go to my personal Facebook pages that I just don't have the faith or trust that the stuff that I care about is actually going to surface. Well, I, I think you guys are right that Facebook has kind of has kind of drifted away from its roots as an actual social network where you keep up with people you care about. I do think they are trying to get back to that. Um and I just think that they may have this – they often have this ideal in mind for what the news feed could be or should be that doesn't always turn out to be that realistic. So for the past few years, they've had this idea of a news feed that was just full of quality journalism and, and high, you know, high-quality content, whatever that means. Um, and it turns out that, that that's, you know, as much as they tried to downgrade clickbait in all kinds of ways using machine learning and using uh, focus groups – it just didn't work. I mean, people did not, people's feeds just would not get full of high quality content, no matter how much Facebook tried. And we might see the same thing here. I mean, they, they have, they seem to now have this idea of a news feed that's filled with these meaningful interactions with your friends where you're having in-depth discussions in the comments of their posts. I don't know. I mean, do people, are people really going to go on Facebook and, and start debating, you know, life and love and death uh, in the comments to people's uh, pictures of their babies? We'll find out. Thank uh, God we have you to explain this stuff to us. Will Arimus is Slate's tech columnist, tech reporter. Thanks uh, thanks a lot for coming back on the show. Great talking to you. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? You know, I, I can't resist it. I'm going to endorse something that we've I've talked about possibly two or three times already on this show. It's something we did as a segment <laughs> when it first came out, and I loved it. I think way later on I endorsed this again. And uh, it's something that I it's a work of art that I only encounter a couple times a year and every time it blows me away. So I'm going to endorse it one more time with a tip of how to get into this somewhat challenging work of art if you've resisted it before. So um, it's a winter wallow. It falls into that category of, you know, music to be listened to on sad, cold winter days. And it's Joanna Newsom's album, Have One on Me, which uh, I think is maybe to speak. Help me. Help me. I'm, I'm about to. Okay. So this, I think, from this is my end of the fucking world. This is maybe my one of my favorite things I've encountered in our years of doing the show, and one of the things that's really remained in my cultural life. Although, as I say, only really on cold winter walks. And uh, so the the category of album this falls into, and maybe this is not Julia's favorite category of album either. So this may not be a selling point for her, but it's a it's a breakup album and it's a story album. So. Albums that it reminds me of in terms of the scope of its ambition and the way it ties sort of continuing themes into songs that that sort of lyrical moments recur in different songs would be Joni Mitchell's Blue, 
or mm. Elvis Costello's Imperial Bedroom, right? Also an album about oh, a, yeah. a dissolving relationship that's sort of like a book that you open and the songs flow into each other and you sort of can't remember what image comes in what song because it's all tied into this one sort of painful and beautiful whole. And Have One On Me is is like that. Um, and so my advice on how to get into this album if you're Joanna Newsom resistant, for one thing, know that it is not like her earlier albums that are just a harp and a voice. So if you resist the sound, which I don't, I happen to love it, but if you resist the sound of her kind of nasal twangy voice and her lovely medievalist harp, there's a lot more to this album than that. It's kind of really interestingly scored with all kinds of crazy sound textures, including full symphonies at moments and horns coming in at really unexpected times or flutes, also some harp, but just like this gorgeously orchestrated album it's quite long. It's a triple album, and it has 18 songs on it, some of which are, are quite long in and of themselves, like eight-minute songs. And that's why I associate it with this particular kind of listening, when you really sort of want to cocoon yourself with an album and hear the whole thing all the way through. It might take a couple days to listen to the whole thing all the way through if you only have so much time to listen. But that story that it tells just keeps drawing me back in. It's full of incredible melodic moments. The lyrics are so dense that I still, after years of loving this album, don't really know them. I always keep meaning to look them up and read along as I listen, but I just kind of get carried away and let myself discover them bit by bit. But here's my my clue of how to maybe get in if you don't want to just start at the top of this very long and, and demanding album. Just listen to the last song. It's called Does Not Suffice. It sort of wraps up. It's essentially the story of, of packing your things when you're moving out of your lover's apartment. and uh, But then it becomes this sort of meditation on the whole relationship and on time and the passage of time. It's absolutely gorgeous. The last song is called Does Not Suffice. I will pack all my pretty dresses I will box up my high shoes My sparkling ring So just try listening to that last song, Does Not Suffice, and ask yourself, do I want to hear the rest of this love story? Do I want to hear what came before, what this this character, because she's essentially almost sort of singing in character, although it may be autobiographical, I don't know. Um, but do I want to hear the, the what came before to, in this story, in this character? I can't imagine that you'll hear that song and not be at least somewhat curious to know what happened before the clothes were packed from that closet. So Have One on Me by Joanna Newsom, and the song to find your way in if you resist is the last song, Does Not Suffice. Oh, wow. That's a winner of an endorsement there. Um, um, Julia, what do you have? I've got a great book to read. I should mention that last week I asked you all to help me uh, fill the sad hole in my reading life left by the fact that I finished all of the Tana French Dublin Murder Squad mysteries. Uh, Jody Rosen to the rescue, as usual, he noted that Richard Lloyd Perry has a new book out, relatively new, about the tsunami in Japan. Richard Lloyd Perry wrote a book that I'm almost certain I endorsed called People Who Eat Darkness, um, which is an mm. incredibly... Oh, yeah, about the Japan... Yeah, yeah, yeah I haven't read that. It's but... about a grisly murder mystery in Japan, but really it's about tabloid culture and Japanese culture and... Uh, the impulses toward sexual violence and complicated tensions between Japan and Korea. I mean, it's 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 just one of the best works of nonfiction 
writing I've encountered in the last 10 years. This is just the hyperbole show, I guess, but it, it, it's really <laughs> yeah, on my absolutely. on my highest, highest list. Um, and Perry has a new book out that's about the wake of the tsunami that devastated Japan in 2011. It's a tough story to read in that it centers on the deaths of a group of children. I won't say more than that because the way that he unfolds the story is part of why you would read the book. So, So know your limits if that's not something you can stomach. But to me... The mastery of the storytelling and the seriousness of the inquiry into the response to the tsunami and the devastating challenges of trying to understand what had happened and why and the unfathomability of basically death. Um, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. Ghosts of the Tsunami by Richard Lloyd Perry. Oh, my God. All right. Well, now I've got to bring a game superlatives here well first of all let me make sure this is the right song you guys know this song no i think so Mm -mm, i don't recognize it all right i'm gonna surprise you i believe i'm gonna surprise you with cat power oh i love her love her music uh caught her live back in the day but just kind of lost track of her in 2012 she came out with a record sun back in 2012 that song is called manhattan it is like there are some songs that are just they're just drugs i mean you just can't stop taking them man it i, I need that hit every few hours i've been listening to manhattan by uh by cat power but um i'm gonna up the superlative game here and say that i had an experience in addition to end of the fucking world of something that really moved me and i what i'm wondering is if uh, Dana, not only if you've seen it, but whether you endorsed it, um, the, the Romanian film Graduation. Oh, yes, I have seen it. I haven't written about it or endorsed it or anything, but please go ahead. It's really good. So the director's name is Christian Munju. He won the Palme d'Or at Cannes for, a, a, for another movie called Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, for which he, I think he's better known at this point than for Graduation. Um, but it's an excruciating film about the moral choices facing this middle-aged man who's a doctor in essentially a failing society in Romania. Uh, I mean, it's that's what the movie is about. It's about how someone who has an ethical conscience and a sense of professional duty gets essentially eaten alive, especially as he attempts to rescue his daughter from his very promising daughter from, from what he sees as a society so compromised um, against ethical or or or, uh, or existences devoted to excellence or, or flourishing in any way that he's kind of he kind of is deciding to do whatever he can to get her out. And um, what I loved about the movie, I mean, I loved everything about the movie. The performances are remarkable. It's um, it really reminded me of um, Farhadi, the Iranian director, his movie Separation. We discussed about Ellie and um, uh, the salesman film uh, in that. You have a society where, because of its inherent failings, as a society is forcing moral choices on individuals every single day, if not every hour of their life, that you, and if the irony of a failing society is that you are forced to think and act morally on a, on a more or less constant basis and ask yourself what compromises you're willing to make um in favor of your own skin and, and those of your loved ones. And um one of the massive luxuries of a country like ours which is you know has its problems but is somewhat structurally sound at least relatively structurally sound is uh, you can become blithe about those you can become a kind of unmore i mean it's a, it is the failing of our society that we, be, we can become deeply morally unreflective and all the you know horrible things that proceed from that but but it it, it 
it this this it's it's such a beautiful film. I can only recommend it in the highest terms. I mean, I think it's really an extraordinary movie. Dana, you you loved it. I did love it. Yes, Christian Munju is is the real thing. I mean, I think it's possible that yes. I loved it a little bit less than you because four months, three weeks, two days is one of my favorite movies, and really, I think the uh, best. I mean, one of my favorite movies for the last ten years, probably, and maybe one of the best things to come out just of this. Like all about the tops of the decade. Yeah, we, we need to rename this this episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, of the Romanian new wave, as they call it, there's this sort of new strain of of great naturalistic filmmaking, sort of low budget, yes. socially conscious filmmaking coming out of Romania. And I think Christian Munju is kind of at the at the top of the pyramid yes. of that. My Googling uh, affirms all of that. I mean, I, I someone asked me to watch the movie and I was very surprised. I, I knew nothing, I mean, to my embarrassment, I knew nothing about him or the R- Romanian new wave. This is, this is really worth seeking out. All right, uh, Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Dana, thanks a lot. I just want to say you, you are the people I most have most enjoyed doing a podcast with over the last 10 years. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> like a heartwarming misanthrope to the core. <laughs> oh, there you go. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. And we have a Twitter feed. It's at slate cult fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. The hotel room and the street below.